If you'll take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews, please, in the seventh chapter. We return to Hebrews 7. If you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. As we continue to examine the blessings that have come to us by the coming of Christ. And we come this morning once more to verse 7. I'm sorry, chapter 7 and verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according, not according to the order? <laughs> Apparently I can't speak this morning. <laughs> Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Let's pray. God, you are always in the process of fulfilling your plan. And God... That means change. And sometimes the changes that you bring are not the changes we're looking for. And sometimes the things that you do get by us. And God, it was so when Christ came. So many details of his coming were contrary to what people expected. So many things about who he was were different from what they had anticipated. But God, it was exactly what you said, as are all of your promises. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider the reality of our opposition to truth and our determination to cling to our suppositions, that you would grant us liberty. Free us, God, from our assumptions and free us from our sin. And let us hear your truth and be changed by it. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been thinking about the coming of Christ and thinking about the, the blessings that he brings to us. In the context of the Christmas season, the conversation looks something like this. What difference does it really make that a baby was born 2,000 odd years ago in a tiny little village outside of Jerusalem and nobody noticed and nobody cared then, so why should we notice and why should we care now? And the truth of the matter is, is that that's a fair question, considering how little we know of what God has told us about Jesus and about his coming and about ourselves and himself. So much of what we attempt to say about God, we fabricate out of our imagination. And, and that's been humanity from the very beginning. It is evidence of the fall. It is evidence of... What caused the fall? Man's desire to be God instead of man's desire for God. And it is evidence of the fact that the sin that caused it and the, and the play that Satan used for that sin is still actively being used today. It's the same sin. It's the same attempt. It's the same idea. You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to obey God. You don't have to trust God. You don't have to follow his truth. Just do your own thing. It'll be okay. And how many times do you hear people say, I don't need your interpretation of truth. I don't need you to tell me what's true. I'll tell you what's true for me. I hear people argue against the reality of universal truth. And they'll, they'll say things like this. When you say truth, I hear a capital T in it. And my immediate response is, good, it's supposed to be there. But they, they deny a capital T truth, and they only want a small t truth. And, and it's sort of like somebody who says, outside of the church door there, there is an elm tree. And I believe in that tree, but I don't believe in trees. You understand? I believe in a specific application of a tree, because I can see that one. My truth, my perception. But I don't believe that there's any tree beyond that. I don't believe that there are such things as trees. I don't believe in trees in general. I only believe in that one. It's a stupid argument. It's insane for people to actually think that way, and yet they do. 
And the reality is, is that truth, with a capital T, is an integral part of who God is. We read from Exodus 34 this morning on purpose. And did you notice how God defined himself? Right? We, we all had the passage. I, I'm, we're not going to read it again, but I just want to draw your attention to verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses. Moses had asked him to come and to, to show himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. You see, Moses had asked God, who are you? How do I define you? How do we know you? Can you please reveal yourself unto us? And one of the things that God used to describe himself to Israel and to describe himself to Moses and to describe himself to us, by extension, is that he is the God of truth. Not a God who, who, who has a few true things to say, he is the God of truth. He is the God who defines truth. He is the God who is truth. It's an integral part of who He is. It's a part of His character. You see, God's truth is eternal. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, The Lord is good, and His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Which means the truth that God spoke to Israel is still true today. And the truth that we know about God today, and we know it in full flower, is the same truth that Israel saw dimly. It's the same thing. It's the same truth. It doesn't alter. God's truth is eternal. It's also infinite. Psalm 108 verse 4 says, Your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. That truth is what his works are made of. Did you know that God never does anything that's not true? Did you ever think about that? How God made the world is an expression of truth. All of his works display his truth. All of his works define who he is. Daniel 4.37, when God had taught this lesson to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things Nebuchadnezzar says in his confession of God is this. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and all of his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. You see, ultimately what we find is that God's character shows us his truth, and that his character also shows us that, that in everything he does, he is also just, because his truth is just. Amen? What God does in truth displays justice because justice is defined by truth. This is why there is an innate sense of outrage in us when justice is perverted by people and systems and elected officials who will not do what is right for the sake of what is expedient. And people who understand truth are outraged by this. Why? Because justice is an expression of truth. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In fact, turn there if you would. Deuteronomy 32. And we'll start at verse 1. Moses declaring the goodness of God, and he says this, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All of his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. You see how Moses sandwiched truth with justice on both sides? He is a God of justice. He is a God of truth. He is without injustice. This is because justice rightly defined requires truth. 
You're not allowed to just say, look, here's what justice is to me. Here's how I want you to treat me, and I'll tell you if it's just or not. What God requires of us is that we approach justice and equity and other buzzwords of our culture that they misapply, that we approach it from a ground of truth. You see, we have to define things according to what God says they are and according to how God says the world is supposed to function because His truth is always just. It is always the source of all truth. In other words, there is no truth which is contrary to God's truth. You understand that? You cannot have conflicting things to both be true. So if God is the source of truth, it means that nothing which is outside of Him or contrary to Him can be true. Does that make sense? Listen to how it's put in Psalm 33, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord is right, and all of His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So in practical implications, if these things are a part of the character of God, then His truth also defines how He exercises His rule in all the earth. Make sense? Because if God is truthful, if God is truth, He's not going to rule in a way that is contrary to His truth. This is why we see over and over again how His justice is defined by truth. Because His law is truth. Psalm 119, verse 142 says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. So what God tells us in His law, what God tells us in His Word, is the very definition of truth. Do you follow that? It means that whenever there's a question about anything, we do not poll the masses to find out what they want. We go to the Word of God. And we ask, what has the Lord said? And if there are laws that are contrary to the word of God, they are unjust and they need to be struck down. Period. I don't care what the Supreme Court decides about any issue. I don't care what the law of the land says about anything. I care what God says. And that should be our standard. Now, I want the Supreme Court to function in a way that is consistent with God's law and with the Constitution that they have sworn to uphold. Because that is just. <laughs> and that is consistent with truth. But if the Constitution were contrary to truth, guess which one gets to get chucked out the window? And you know I'm a constitutionalist. <laughs> But there has to be an acknowledgement that truth defines everything. And God is the one who has defined truth because God is truth. His law both defines truth and supports it in that definition. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth and teach me. For you are the God of salvation and on you I wait all the day. Or Psalm 25, verses 8 through 11. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He teaches sinners in the way. The humble He guides in justice. The humble He teaches in His way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Or Psalm 89, verses 14 and 15. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. You see, this is why one of the defining characteristics of what God calls us to be is truthful. He will not allow people into his presence in favor who are setting their lives opposed to the truth. Look at me at Psalm 15. Psalm 15. And this is uh, one of those psalms that kind of defines things for us to really get our heads around. And it puts it so plainly and so clearly. 
Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbors, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is something that God uses to define those which he delights in. Now, does it mean that we do those things and we will earn salvation? No. It means that when you do those things, you are aligning yourself with the structure of the world as it actually is. And if you are aligning yourself with the structure of the world as it actually is, you will walk in favor and blessing because that's the way the world is made. Look, you can step outside in a snowstorm and say to yourself as you stretch around in your bikini, oh boy, it's warm out. But if you lay down in the snow that way, you will freeze to death. It's not that anybody hates you. It's not that the world is unfair. It's that the world functions according to rules and laws which are set in place by the God who made it. And if you try to function outside of those rules and laws, you will pay the consequence with your life. That's just the way God made the world. And he loves us enough to tell us the truth of it so that we can function in accordance to his truth. He requires truth from us. He demands truthful service. Joshua 24, 14. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And he requires it because he deserves it. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, Samuel tells the people, Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. You see, often the very thing that God measures our service with is how truthful it is. He cares greatly about us being honest. Does that, that doesn't mean perfect. We acknowledge that we fail. We acknowledge that we sin. But the measure by which God looks at our, our works is how honest were you about them? Were you truthful? Look at Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5 God's talking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And one of the reasons that he gives is very cogent to this discussion. Starting at verse 1 of Jeremiah 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Seek now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes justice and who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. This is, you've heard me say on more than one occasion that when Abraham argued with God for the sake of Sodom and Gomorrah, that I have believed that he stopped arguing too soon. He said, if you can find only ten righteous men, will you pardon? And then he stopped asking. What does God say here in Jeremiah? Does he say a hundred, a thousand, twenty, ten, five? One. If you can find one righteous man who speaks truth, I'll pardon the city. That's a terrifying statement. Because it tells us exactly how far away from his truth Israel had run. Chapter 7, verse 28 of that same book, he says, So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouths. Now the truth is, is that God will teach us His truth. He will teach us what He requires of us. He will teach us what He wants us to know. Even when we're sinful, Psalm 51, verses 5 and 6, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. 
But he goes on to say, in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. See, a need for truth is something that all of mankind shares. We, we do not have um, a natural predisposition towards truth. We have a natural predisposition away from truth. We hate truth as a people because truth stands contrary to our natural desires. We want what we want. We want it how we want it. We want it when we want it. We want it in the manner in which we want it. And we want it for nothing. <laughs> we hate truth. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me. And listen to how Paul describes our relationship with truth, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So our defining attribute is that we are suppressing the truth in our own unrighteousness. We know what's right. We know what's true. But we don't want to acknowledge it. We want to press it down. We want to suppress it. We want to kill those who speak truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore God also gave them up to the uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts one for another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. There is the judgment of God against mankind because we refused to acknowledge the truth and to submit to his truth. And instead, we chased after what we want. Do not for one minute believe that the national conversation about sexuality and gender and all of these things has anything whatsoever to do with love. It has everything to do with a desire to defy God. It has everything to do with a desire for people to be everything they want to be regardless of what God has said. It's not popular, but it's true. Amen. It is the reality of the world in which we live. And the problem is that the church allowed the world to reframe the argument into a way that left us feeling like, I can't say no, because they just want to love. No, they don't. It's not about love. It's about sin. It's about rebellion against God. It's about a refusal to acknowledge what God has said is true and a desire to remake the world in their own image. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have done so willingly, knowingly, consciously. And understand what Paul says there. It's our fault. Because we didn't speak the truth. We didn't love the truth enough to fight for it. 
We didn't love the truth enough to even understand it. Instead, we hid the truth in sin. We trade truth for lies. And it's impossible to worship God in lies. Why? Because he is truth and lies come from Satan. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Look, understand this. If there are lies in you and lies that you are following and practicing and obeying and yielding to, it conflicts with your ability to worship God. At every place where you give in to lies and at every place where you give in to deceit and at every place where you give in to the desires of your own flesh, it hinders your ability to worship. It's why when God brings revival on a people, the very first thing that happens is a long time of repentance and confession of sin. And it's the people that the world will look at and say, that's the good ones that are leading the way. Because God shows us the truth of our hearts. And he shows us the reality of what we are, and he brings us to himself. Because apart from God, we are nothing but deceit. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. I think that's a verse that we could tattoo across the face of this nation. There is no knowledge of God in the land. Because when we forsake God, we ourselves are forsaken of Him. God will step back and allow us to enjoy the fruit of our ruin. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, starting at verse 3. Like the bow, they have bent their tongue for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. What a statement. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. And through deceit, they refuse to know me. This is us. This is our nation. This is our people. This is us. This is us as individuals. This is humanity at its core. Now the truth is that God is aware of all of these things. And it was to this people and to this sin that he sent Christ. Did Jesus come to only save the good? No. In fact, he said, I didn't come for the good. They don't need me. Not that there are any good. He wasn't saying that. But he was saying if there was somebody good, they wouldn't need a savior. He came for us. He came for the wicked. He came for the evil. He came for the vile. And the problem that we face is that before we can come to a savior and ask for mercy, we have to be honest with ourselves about what we are. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to confess the truth of who we are. We have to confess the reality of what we need. Because we don't need a business partner. We don't need a sugar daddy. We don't need Santa Claus. We need Jesus Christ slain for the forgiveness of sins. We need the Lamb taking away the sin of the world. That's our need. But that's not what we want. What we want is somebody who will come along and coddle our sin, who will tell us it's okay, who will permit us to do whatever it is we want to do, and tell us at the end of the day, after you've done all of your things, it's all right, God is so desperate for company, he just wants you, he doesn't care. It all sounds great until you open the Bible. 
Until you look at what God himself has said. Truth is inseparable from salvation. You cannot be saved apart from it. In fact, truth is the midwife of God. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, there's several things in there that I want to at least draw your attention to. I'm not going to belabor the point that it came from God's will. I'm going to say it and pass on. But notice the intention of God here. God purposed to save a people. And by his own will and by his own work, he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth. He spoke truth to us. Now, truth is offensive. It hurts people's feelings. And I can quote the politician, I don't remember her name, who said, get a helmet, life is hard. Right? Because your feelings are going to be hurt. They're going to get hurt. Because truth is uncompromising, it is unyielding, it is unrelenting, it is unapologetic, but it is also, I'll make up a word here, unwrong. Truth is always right because God is the one who has established truth. So he brings us to face our truth and he hurts us with his truth. He causes pain. We see ourselves for what we are. We see the need for a savior. We cry out saying, God, please have mercy on me. I know what I am. I see what I am. I'm so sorry for what I am. And as truth gets pressed on us, it calls us through. The word of grace, the word of truth, brings us to life as God puts it through us. It is His to give as He pleases. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who saves. He's the one who brings to life. Psalm 85, starting at verse 10, it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. What a beautiful statement. God brings us face to face with the truth of what we are, of what we need, and mercy and truth meet over that encounter, and God gives us life. He beautifully saves those who come to Him in mercy because He loves to do so. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and He will make His footsteps our pathway. How cool is that? The very footsteps of God become our pathway. Right? God's out there breaking trail for us. Carving a path through the darkness. Carving a path through the snow. Making a way for us to find Him. He has done everything needful. And continues to do everything that is required. But He does it according to His good pleasure and according to His will. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deceptions among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. What? Does that say what I think it says? Absolutely it does. God did not give them a love of truth. And in not giving them a love of truth, they cannot be saved. It's His to give. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Look, Here's the reality. God's truth is God's truth. And He brings us to Himself because He desires to bring us to Himself. 
And when he does, the very first thing he does is shows us the truth of what we are and shows us the truth of who he is. And he causes those two absolutely opposed realities to be held together in our minds so that we have no hope and no chance outside of him. Because he is the God who saves the ugly. He is the God who saves the sinner. He is the God who saves the ones who hate him. He is not the God of the self-satisfied. He is not the God of the righteous who think that they're good by the things that they do. And he is certainly not the God of those who make it up as they go along. He calls us to submit to him. Because in the end, God's truth overrules all of our ideas about what is right and what is true. And it overrules them without any consideration for them. Even Jesus' enemies understood this is who he was. You remember when they came to him and they were trying to trick him into saying something that could be punishable by Rome and they asked him about paying taxes and Jesus jumped up on the platform and said, taxation is theft, don't pay it. No, that's not what he said, right? He said, look, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But do you remember what they said at the beginning? Look at Matthew 22, verses 15 and 16. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. You know, somebody came to me and opened with that, I'd look at them and I'd say, Thank you. I like that description. Yeah, what do you want? I, I like that description. Because truth requires us to speak truth regardless of whether or not you're hurting somebody's feelings. And that's exactly what they just said about Jesus. You don't regard the person of men. You don't say, oh, I shouldn't tell this parable. That's going to hurt him. He just spoke the truth that needed to be said. Why? Because we need the truth. We don't need to be coddled. I'll get there, Gene. Thank you. We, we don't need to be coddled. We don't need to be cajoled. We don't need God to tell us lies and comfort us into hell. And beloved, the lost people in your life do not need you to tell them lies and comfort them into hell. They need you to speak truth. They need you to tell them what God has said. I, I did a service yesterday for Pat Merriman, and afterwards one of the attendees came up and thanked me for speaking the truth of the gospel at the service. And he said to me this, and it, it, it just it crushed me. He said, I have been to dozens of funerals, and I have never once heard the gospel presented. Thank you. I don't even know. I don't even know what you do with that. Speak the gospel. Speak the gospel. I, I, I have no other choice. But it's so damning that all of these preachers have the chance to speak the truth when people's hearts are open. They're sitting there in front of somebody that they loved who is dead. And instead of speaking the truth, they go, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's just empty. It's just, you know, we miss them. They were good. No. Tell the truth. And beloved, you're going to be in people's lives when their heart is burst open by the truth of what God is doing. And they need the truth from you. They don't need you to comfort them with empty platitudes. They need to know how to find God. And that's what Jesus came to give us. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why the nativity matters. Because he is God made flesh who came to show us God, to die in our place, to rectify the evil that our lives had become so that in everything that we were and everything that we did, God could be honored in us. But I want you to notice the truth that in his speaking of the truth, he made them so angry they murdered him. 
You should not expect the world to jump up and applaud you and say, yay, thank you for hurting our feelings. I have a quote on my wall in my study that says, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but the essence of it says that a pastor who speaks the truth should expect to have no friends in his congregation or in his town. It uses the word parish, but it's an English quote. It's old. Except genuine converts. Right? Only people who love God are going to love a man who speaks the truth. And that shouldn't surprise us. It, it also shouldn't hinder us. Because we are not to desire the praise of men. We are to desire the praise of God. We are desired to bring glory to our King and to honor His name and to magnify His truth because there is no salvation apart from truth. The Spirit who dwells within us only speaks truth. So somebody who says to you, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Bible. They're not a Christian. Period. Because the Spirit of God who dwells inside of Christians only speaks truth. He doesn't lie. Because He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of God. He can't lie. Listen to what Jesus said. John 16. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, the implication is hears from God, that he will speak. And he will tell you the things to come. You can't be saved if the Spirit's not living in you. And if the Spirit's living in you, you're not going to love lies. Look, this is something exclusive to the true church. You need to understand that. When you're looking at people who are out in the world, they don't have a handle on truth. They don't know what truth is. They cannot receive truth. They cannot understand truth, and they probably won't appreciate it when they see it. Listen to how Jesus described it. John 14, verse 17, he says, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells in you and will be in you. Or John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, He said, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Salvation is impossible apart from truth because truth is righteous. Proverbs 12, 17 says, He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness is deceit. And it's also impossible because truth is mercy. Being aligned with truth makes us like God. Jeremiah 33, 6 says, Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul writes, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. This is because Jesus Christ is the truth of God. Look, we talk about Jesus being God incarnate, Right? We talk about Jesus being God made flesh, divesting himself of his glory and coming to earth to die in our place, to be fully man, to be fully God. But do we really wrestle out the implications of what it means that Jesus is the truth of God made flesh? In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And nobody gets to the Father except through me. I have no apologies to offer to any other religion except to say, I'm sorry you are going to hell. Please come to Christ. Because that's the only thing that can be said. Those who are outside of Christ have no hope. It doesn't matter how sincere they are. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how nice they are. There's lots of nice people going to hell. 
nice as far as people go. Much nicer than me. So why am I not going to hell if I'm mean? Well, because I'm washed in the blood of Christ. Because he's given me a love for him that is birthed out of his truth. Because my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Choose your answer. They're all true. It has nothing to do with my niceness. It has nothing to do with my righteousness, thankfully. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done and how his blood and his life and his righteousness has been applied to me. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know I can't preach without quoting it. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took my sin, even that which I have committed even today, and counted it to Christ and punished it in Christ. And he took the full and perfect righteousness of Christ and credits it to my account. He made me clean by his blood, by his sacrifice. And that is the truth of Scripture. And apart from that truth, any other idea about how your righteousness should satisfy God is a lie from the pit of hell. Because the standard by which God will judge our righteousness is very simple. It is perfection. And if you want God to judge you according to your works, okay, He will. You just won't like the answer. I promise. Salvation is impossible apart from truth. Now truth has an impact. It has a positive impact and it has a negative impact. It's kind of hard to think about truth having a negative impact. But let's start with a positive. First of all, it's our shield and our buckler. Psalm 91, verses 4 and following. Psalm 91, the psalmist writes this. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your right side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. The truth of God does this for you. When we cling to the truth, it does what it does because it is true. We don't live in a culture that even understands the definition of true. But I hope that the church does. If something is true, it's always true. It's not true sometimes. It's not true a little bit. It's not partially true. It's either true or it's not. And every word of God is truth. And when we cling to Him and cling to His truth, it becomes to us a shield from everything that goes on around us. And it doesn't matter what it looks like in the moment, God's truth still stands. It is still right. It is still true. It is still reality. This is what it is for us. The impact of truth becomes for us a shield. It preserves us when we cling to it. It leads us. Psalm 43 verse 3 says, Send, me, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. It frees us. John 8.32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Truth becomes the support of your life. That's why in the armor of God, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he said, buckle on the belt of truth. Now we're not talking about just a sword belt that hangs your sword and your money bag and whatever else you want to carry. 
The belt was the it was that which girded your loin, which held your back firm, which gave you stability. The armor was heavy. All the things they had to carry weighed a lot. It was cumbersome. And so they gave soldiers equipment to help hold them in and hold them together. And that's truth in the picture of the armor of God. It becomes the support for our lives. Look, you don't need to wonder what's going to happen when people lie. You know what that's going to be. You need to know what God says is true and bank on that. You need to set your life in accordance to what God has promised and let His truth be the defender and the shield and the support and the strength of your life. When we love God, we love His ways. And when we love His ways, truth becomes the pathway for our life because God Himself becomes our unfailing supply. Whatever you need, you run to Him with the truth in your hand and God will always honor His truth. He will never fail to keep His word. He will never fail to provide what He has promised for His children. Look at Psalm 86. Psalm 86, starting at verse 11, it says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to to fear your name. I love that verse. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me. A mob of violent men has sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Turn to me. Have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. A thousand may fall at your right hand, ten thousand at your left. But the only impact in my life is I'm going to stand and look at what has gone and it didn't touch me, is what the psalmist said. And so when the people surrounded him and harassed him, what did he do? He remembered the word of God, and he said, God, bring your truth to me. And then he said, unite my heart. In other words, don't let me be double-minded. Don't let me be afraid. Don't let me be doubting. Don't let me be wondering. Let me trust you. Unite my heart that I would love your ways and love your truth and obey your truth all the days of my life. Let me dwell in your truth. Look, here's the reality, beloved. Things are going to get scary. Things are going to get dark. Things are going to be ugly. No matter how things shake out and what's going on in the culture around us, there will be dark days ahead. And you are going to be faced with the decision, do I honor God or do I hide? Do I blend into the culture? Do I act like a chameleon or do I stand like a warrior for truth? And we're all afraid. But we don't need to be. We need to ask God to unite our hearts so that what we know and what we believe and what we do are consistent across. You see, truth sanctifies us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification by the Spirit and by belief in the truth. So when you believe the truth, it has a sanctifying effect in your life. Or 1 Peter 1.22. It says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So as truth sanctifies our hearts, it also then begins to sanctify our lives. It begins to be fleshed out in how we live, in what we do, and what it looks like. Right? A church that is functioning biblically loves one another. We rise to the occasion. We help. We do what we can. We pray for each other. We visit one another. We talk to one another. We support one another. If there's a need, we do our best to meet it. That's how the church is supposed to function. That's evidence of truth being present. Because truth takes root in your life after it takes root in your heart. Does that make sense? If it's planted in your heart and it's taken root there, it will bear fruit in your life. And John 17, 19 tells us the reason why this is all so. 
Jesus praying in his high priestly prayer says, For their sakes I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Because our hearts confirm that we belong to him. 1 John 3, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we will know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So as truth is made evident in our lives and manifesting itself through the things that God has put into our lives, it gives us confidence. And where the truth comes up against our sin and says, hey, let's deal with that. God forgives and he bathes us in the water of his word. He bathes us with the truth of his word. He bathes us in the blood of Christ and he restores us to confidence. He draws us to himself. These are all the impacts of truth, the positive impacts of truth. But truth also has negative impacts. It marks us as false when we reject it. 1 John 2.21 says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. But I have written because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. So John says, look, you need to understand that those who are outside of the truth don't know it. They don't understand it. And when the truth is presented, they reject it. We turn away from God and we turn away from truth when we hate it. 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 3, says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside into fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. What's the temptation? The temptation goes like this. Oh, you're a little tiny church. You're a dying church. You need to change up what you're teaching. You need to change up what you're preaching. You need to change up what you're believing so that the people around you will want to come. And then when there's a lot of people, then you'll know that you're a healthy church. But that's not the truth. The truth says you speak the truth of God and you speak the truth of God faithfully according to his word. And those who belong to God will love it. And those who do not will not. The only question of whether or not we're a healthy church is are we functioning like a church is supposed to function? Do we believe the truth? Do we live the truth? Do we love the truth? Do we honor God in how we live it out? And I think that by and large we're a healthy church. We're just a healthy small church. And that's okay. You see, God honors those who honor him. But we can look at what the impact is in other people's lives and we can know that when we will not honor his truth, it hurts us. And it hurts the people around us. See, truth not only has an impact, it also has demands. We have to confess and acknowledge the truth of who God is. Look at 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. I'm almost done. Starting at verse 6, it says this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what John tells us is that in order to live out the truth of God, it requires honesty about our failure, it requires practice to walk in it, and it requires us to be intentionally walking towards holiness. It requires us to be conscious of what God has said in his word about what is true and what is false, and to be conscious of our aim so that we are intentionally progressing towards righteousness. Not that we're getting it right all the time. God does not require perfection. He provides it. 
right? He gives us perfection as a byproduct of his work. He does not require perfection for us to gain entrance. It's not a price. It's a promise. Okay? But we do have to be honest about it. We have to treat carefully and accurately with the truth that has been given to us. It's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's specifically spoken to a pastor, but it has implications in the lives of every single person who's under his teaching. Because my job is to equip you for the work of service. My job is to teach you how to know the truth out of the Word of God in accordance to His Word and how to apply it to how you live. So we're all accountable for rightly dividing the Word of truth. We have to speak the truth that has been given to us. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Are you permitted to lie because it's going to make them uncomfortable if you tell them the truth? No. Speak the truth. We have to do it in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, who is Christ. But we still have to speak it. And more than just speaking it, we have to obey it. Romans 2 verse 8 says, To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there is reserved indignation and wrath. And one last thing. If we're going to be rightly connected to God and rightly connected to His truth, we also have to be rightly connected to the body of Christ, which is highly esteemed by God. So much so, well, just listen to it. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. I want you to see this. This is the last scripture we're going to read. 1 Timothy chapter 3. One verse. Paul says, If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Paul describes the church as the pillar and the ground of truth. Of truth. Those are really strong words of high praise. Are they not? Does God esteem his church? Amen, he does. Does God value his bride? <laughs> you bet he does. And so if we're going to be faithful to the truth, we have to be faithful to obey all of it, which includes how we are connected to and relate to the church. Because the church, in the words of God, is the pillar and the ground of truth. Look, this should be the one place where you know without question you come to hear truth. There may be others. If God is merciful, there will be other places in your life where you might have truth also. They're going to be the same truth, though, because it's going to be rooted and anchored in who God is and in His Word. But you should be able to know that the church where you are a part of is a place you can always come to to hear the truth of God, to have the truth faithfully presented, regardless of whether or not the pastor's afraid it's going to make you angry. Beloved, we have to be rightly connected. We have to be rightly attached and rightly plugged in. Because here's the reality of it. When you distance yourself from the people who will hold you accountable to truth, you make it very easy to pick and choose the parts you're going to obey. It's just the reality of it. We all deal with ourselves much gentler than we should. <laughs> and I say that knowing that sometimes people are, are wired to treat with themselves harsher than they should. 
you know which camp your general predisposition lies in. So if you're a person who's always beating yourself up, you can just plug your ears at this moment. <laughs> but most of us are not that person. Most of us are, are pretty gentle to ourselves. Most of us are pretty kind to ourselves. Most of us are, are far more willing to administer grace to our own errors than we are to others. But people who love you in truth are going to, in love, speak truth to you in the places you will not necessarily speak truth to yourself. And we need that. If we don't have it, we will be unbalanced. And if we don't have it, we will not walk in truth as we ought. And we will be ineffective in the sharing of truth with a lost and dying world. Look, I want you to understand all of this is why we celebrate Jesus coming. <laughs> because He is the very truth of God, made flesh. He is the very Word of God come among us to not only forgive our sin, but to help us understand what it is so that we might repent. And if there is no salvation apart from truth, and you love people and want to see them saved, then you better be carrying the truth to them, unrelenting and unapologetically. Let's pray. God, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that as we think on these things, you would put a shield over our hearts from anything I might have said that was not truth. Lord, we all know I get excited sometimes, and, and sometimes my mouth gets ahead of my head. So if there's any of that present, I pray that you take it away. But God, I also pray that every single word that is truth be planted in us so deep that it bears fruit immediately. Transform us according to your grace and because of the glory that is given to us in Christ. And let us be found faithful and pleasing. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.